Welcome to the Daniel McInnes Podcast, a podcast for small businesses who are seeking great practical advice about marketing and sales. Danielle thinks like a customer. Even as a little kid, she always has shown deep empathy for others. Dan uses this customer insight to help small businesses create practical marketing strategies that work. Using this customer-centric approach and her 20 years' experience in sales and marketing, Dan takes what is in your head, adds her expertise to create a system to assist you make better marketing decisions, attracts a regular stream of ideal customers, and creates a brand that your employees and customers will love. Hope you enjoy this podcast. So welcome back to my podcast for another week and I'm delighted this week to introduce you to Hugh McFarlane who runs a company called Math Marketing. Math Marketing provides sales and marketing consultancy to businesses right across Australia and around the world. And while Hugh services what you would consider blue chip companies, I think that small businesses can learn a lot from the process that he takes his clients through. He's written a book called The Leaky Funnel, and I'll put a link to that afterwards. Um, And he's got some fantastic insights about how we can start asking the right questions, not only to focus our business's marketing, but the buying path and when we become those salespeople um, within our businesses and training others, what should we be focusing on and how should we be doing it? So I hope you enjoy this interview with the great Hugh McFarlane. Obviously, my market is small business. Yeah. Some of half my clients have um, a sales department, and half of them don't. Um, Many of them are now waking up to the fact that they need to have a lead generation system. Um, You know, they're hearing all these things, but they're just not sure how to piece it all together. And when I get the phone call, you know, it's the typical thing. We need a website or we need an ad or we need whatever. Um, Once they sort of get past that initial tactical response and they actually sit down and think what they're trying to achieve, the piece that's missing for me often in small businesses is this sales funnel or the sales management. And so I just thought, oh, you're the perfect person to speak to, Hugh. I've read your book, (laughs) Sales Funnel, which is fantastic. And I'll put a link to that. But... um, I really wanted you, from your perspective, to just talk about what you see as the role of sales in a small business and marketing. Sales is probably more obvious than marketing. Somebody's got to interact with the customers. But I wouldn't want to describe them separately. In fact, I'd go to some lengths to describe them together. What's their collective responsibility? They need to... Um, position the company as a solution to a, an identified problem. And I'll come back to the problem later. Mm-hmm. But part of the job is to get your company on the list of possible providers of a solution to that problem should you ever have it. Mm-hmm. They've got to get some of that market to the point where they realise that they've got that problem right now as well as a second thing. Yeah. As a third thing, they need to earn the right to fix that problem. <laughs> yeah. Evidently. And the fourth thing is that when that doesn't work, because the customer just doesn't want to engage right now, they need to nurture those prospects so that when they do have the problem, yeah. you're the first one they call. Yeah. 
really those four things. Find buyers likely to have the problem and get yourself on the list. Get some of them troubled about the problem. Earn the right to solve it. Mm-hmm. And then when you don't, earn the right to um, stay on their radar one way or another mm-hmm. so that when they do have a problem, you're the first one they want to talk to. So can we take a practical example? Say one of my clients is a financial planner and they're just going through this at the moment and what they think that they need to do is shout a lot about them and about what they do. Can you paint that picture of those steps for them, like what that should look like? Yeah. So financial planners on uh, on first blush are commoditised. They're all the same. Mm. But if you ask each financial planner, they'll, of course, think that they're different. And some of that's valid. They are different in some certain way. But that difference is entirely indulgent and academic if that isn't to solve somebody's problem. So you might have the problem that um, uh, particularly reflects your, 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 uh, your wealth, your past experience, your expectations out of life, your family circumstances, and they might be particularly good at some particular um, set of those circumstances. Yeah. That's how they're different. So it's not that I'm different because I do these things, that's me. Yeah. It's different because I can solve the problem of uh, uh, inadequate wealth planning for a certain group in the market. Yeah. That's how I'm different. It's all about the market, not about the vendor. Yeah. And so they need to find, they need to work out what that problem is in the first place. What problem can I solve better than all the other financial planners? Yeah. How do they choose which problem to solve? Like, how do they make that call? Because I think a lot of them have a real problem around that. that and I've, I've said this in other podcasts, it's more saying no that they have the problem with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To sort of hang themselves on one is quite a difficult thing for them. They think that they're missing out by doing that, when in fact they could have a suite underneath that. Yeah. But this is the one that they push forward as you know they're sort of the thing that they want to be known for. Good, good point. And it's not just small businesses who face that wrestle. I will say an odd thing that I've not yet come to understand why, mm-hmm. uh, but I do know it to be so. Small businesses struggle to focus where large businesses are quite good at it. Mm. I don't know which one's cause and which one's effect. Mm. But I've seen this enough times that I'm convinced it's a very repeatable phenomenon that little businesses want to be flexible. They love the fact that they're small and they can be nimble, and that's great, and therefore they don't have a consistent single message. Yes. What am I? Well, I'm, I'm sort of whatever you want me to be. <laughs> yes. You know, if you ever need somebody who's really good at stuff, call me. <laughs> Exactly. And, and in the moment of this conversation, you remember me. And then five minutes later, you've forgotten me because I do stuff. Yeah. You can't sort of hang, you can't put me in a box. Yeah. They need to get over that. Yeah. Find something that they're uncommonly good at and just really focus on that. Make sure the market knows that you're the best in the world at solving that problem by saying it often enough. Mm-hmm. Legitimately become the best in the world at solving it by doing it. You know, every day find a new way to solve that problem a little bit better. Mm. So you are worthy of that claim. Mm. Um, But that then comes to your first question, which is how do you choose? Mm. I could do that focus thing for any of the next 20 20 problems. Mm. Which one do I choose? Mm. And you need a problem that 
you're already good enough at solving. That's important. So you're leveraging some expertise, level. existing expertise. Yeah. yeah. But it's got to be worth focusing on. It's got to be a problem that hurts badly enough that people want to spend money to make it go away. Otherwise, you're majoring in the minus. Yeah. Yeah. To use a baseball term. So you need a problem that's pressing for enough people that they want to make it go away and spend mm. money to make it go away. And ideally, that there aren't that many competitors who can also do a good job of solving it. That's a really attractive problem. Mm-hmm. And there might be, out of the 20 problems, there might be four that are more attractive than the rest. Mm-hmm. And then of the four, which one are you strongest at solving already? Mm. And that's probably the problem you want to pick. Mm. It's an interesting process. When I think about financial planners, I've been doing a little bit of, I guess, research, and I came across um, Scott Pape, the barefoot investor, and I thought, oh, this is an interesting guy. So I started to listen to his podcast, and he's done exactly what you said. In fact, he's done it so cleverly because he's stuck to what he really believes and the same message. So his message is, I'm fiercely independent. I don't work for a big conglomerate. Mm-hmm. I actually and really good at personal finance. For, for the X and Y generation, I'm it. I'm not going to tell you a lot of um, statistics. I'm going to tell you practical things about how to apply this. And if you go on his website, there's lots of tools and things that reinforce that for, for that age group. Yep. And it's not for anyone else. He's not talking about superannuation now, although he does refer to it. So he can build in these other building blocks, but he's fiercely on this line, you know. And he's really building his brand, his credibility around that. So this is working. And, I, you know, I thought I would use that to sort of educate my clients to actually show them the proof because it's very hard to visualize what that looks like you know what I mean you're sort of doing it but I find a lot of the process that we go through is until it's actually working they don't actually connect that that's actually a good model and the way that they should be doing it let me add two things to that Um, one is a get out of jail free card if you choose one of... We're talking about 20 problems. Of course, that was just a, an arbitrary number. Yeah. But let's say there are 20 problems that you could have focused on that you can do a good enough job of solving. Yeah. But if you chose the one that is attractive enough, that is, it's pressing, there are not many other solutions to it, maybe it's growing, um, um, and that you're good enough at solving. If a buyer has that problem, then the chances are very good that you'll win. If they have one of the other 19 problems, then somebody else might win. Yes. So your win rate goes up when you focus on what you're very good at doing. Yeah. Evidently. Mm. Yeah. So there's an argument for doing it. The get out of jail free card, the second point, is that when you're in front of a prospect, you tried to find a buyer who had your chosen problem. And they say, so that's interesting, Hugh, but actually that's not what's hurting me right now. My problem right now is and they go on and explain it. Yeah. At which point I shut up and pull my pen out and start listening. Yeah. Because they're giving me a genuine business problem that maybe I can solve. Yeah. For sure somebody else can solve it, but if I'm there with them right now, maybe I have an unusually good chance of solving it, not because I'm better than the other guy, but because he's not in the room and I am. Mm. So So it's sort of like an entree into... It, it, it's okay to be okay at a bunch of other things, yeah. but it's great to be great at something. Yeah. So work out what that is, be uncommonly good about it, and then to your point about the financial planner, don't tell them how great you are at it. 
tell the market about why that's a genuine issue. Yeah. But um, you know, let's say the issue is, um, uh, let's take the situation of a single father. Mm. Okay, so uh, for whatever reason, he's got kids and there's no mum on the scene. He has a peculiar set of requirements for his own wealth planning. Mm. I don't know what they are, I'm not a financial planner, but mm. the financial planner would. Mm. And let's say he's really good at building a good financial future for that sort of person. Mm. So they're a professional, but they need to have um, uh, a certain amount of cash available um, uh, quickly in the event that they need to take some time off work that's unpaid to deal with the kids, let's say. Yeah. So that's something that this particular financial plan is amazing at solving that problem. Yeah. Good. So you don't talk about the fact that I'm great at it. You talk about the fact that um, you know, as a as a uh, professional with a with an ongoing future in, in your chosen field, um, you know, you, you need to, to plan for a for a medium term future, mm-hmm. but you need some now as well. Mm. And talk about that problem. Show some unique insights into that problem. Evidence your uncommon understanding of that problem. They know that you can solve that problem or you wouldn't be talking about it. Your buyers aren't stupid. Yeah. You know, you don't need to tell them, oh, and by the way, I can do that stuff. They know you wouldn't talk about it if you couldn't. They're smart. Yeah. Give them some credit. And so don't tell them the obvious. Tell them the not obvious, which is you probably are having a great day at work and you've just been given a raise and you think, therefore, that your financial future is secured. But there's a twist because you've got the kids. You also need to allow for this. So talk about the problem and your unusual, unique, deep insights into that problem, and that's what they should be communicating. Yeah, it sort of seems simple insight like that. And when, when you visit a website or if you see an ad and they are actually asking the question that's in the back of your mind, yeah. you, you do twig your interest, don't you? Because it's all about me, Hugh. The greatest compliment that we can be paid as vendors, as a seller of a product or service, is I read your stuff and I think you've been looking through my windows. Yeah. What a great compliment to be paid. It seems like you understand my world. Yeah. Rather than you guys have got good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's a totally different position. I want to go back to the sales marketing because you're going to talk to me as, as a whole process of what that looks like so that when you're working so you've sort of walked through that process of identifying the problems and then going through and positioning yourself to fix it how do you delineate between the marketing component of a small business and the sales process how do they digest that because I think a lot of small businesses when they get into business they've got this idea that they're going to sell, and most of them are service, but product or service, they have the nuts and bolts of setting it up, and that, and that a lot of my clients say, well, Dan, you know, we just started getting referrals, we did good work, we went to bed, we threw the doona over our head, we thought more will come. Mm-hmm. Some of them might have done some sort of yellow pages or outreach, but really, they rely a lot on this word of mouth concept. Mm-hmm. And I think they identify that most of them are the seller of the business or the face or the, or the business development of, of, of what they're doing. But I don't think that they actively sign up for sales and marketing as a role. I think most of them spend most of their life doing the business mm-hmm. with a little tiny twinge in the back of their head, what are we going to do if you know we need to get more sales in? We yep. should start doing something about that. Do you see what I mean? comes back to the thought leadership piece as well. Most professional services people 
you and I included. Yeah. Um, enjoy serving our clients. And we take some pride in our profession and we try to do a good job. And that's true of an accountant, that's true of a lawyer, it's true of a financial planner, it's true of engineers, it's true of all professional services. Yeah. We, 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 we're proud of the stuff that we do. Mm. And to some extent, sales and marketing is grubby stuff. Mm. And they don't want to associate with it. Uh, but then you raise the problem with that, which is that if they don't do enough work to create new demand, then they might find themselves doing half the revenue they need to be doing. Mm. So they know the problem, but they don't want to be out there talking to people who don't want to listen to them. So don't. Mm. Right? Don't go and talk to people who don't want to listen to you. That's silly anyway. Mm. It's silly if you're selling a product, and it's very silly if you're selling a service. But little things. Um, send out a monthly, not a newsletter. Most of them have a newsletter. Mm. Kill the newsletter. Mm. Right. I agree. Right. Newsletter is the worst thing you can do. Nobody cares about you. Yes. They care about them. Yes. But send them a monthly insight piece. In brackets, it used to be the newsletter. But they don't want your news. No. They want to hear something that's useful to them. Yeah. The fact that you've just appointed this great new person in your team is only interesting to you. Yeah. So send them a monthly insight piece that shows some or that shares with them some knowledge that they'll find useful and applicable. Yeah. And that's so that's replaced your newsletter. First thing. Second thing is every three months, for example, get eight people in a room, buy them a nice lunch, and talk about some particular angle of that problem that you're unusually good at solving. Mm. Don't talk to them. Talk with them. Yeah. Isn't that fantastic insight for, for both parties? Absolutely. You'll get, you'll get great insight yourself, your point, wholly. You'll hear the language that they use around the problem. That becomes potential content for your next insight piece. Absolutely. Um, and you get a bunch of people sitting around the table talking about a problem that they all share and when they share it, why they share it, what it means for them sharing it. And then of the eight, maybe a couple of them are worth following up and saying, so, so Dan, you know, I heard you talking about this at the lunch. Is that something we need to focus on together? Exactly. So it's a lead generation. It's totally. a content. You can repurpose the content in a couple of ways. And you actually, I think that they never, you can never say it better than your customers can. Hmm. So, you know, to hear it out of their mouth, those problems, it's copywriting. And the problem's <laughs> not the solution. It's not about... Let's talk about what a great job so-and-so did for me. Yeah. That's not the dialogue. It's let's, let's talk about this issue. What, why is this an issue? When does it present? How do you avoid it? What are some of the clever ways that we've collectively between us as a group of peers mm. um, uh, fixed this problem before? Um, what have we read about it that's interesting to talk about? Um, that's our legend. Mm. So, again, it's not talking to people who don't want to talk to you at all. Mm. Don't do that. I think that's silly. No, well, what strikes me when you're sort of saying that is it's really, I feel that marketing's changed from um, perhaps sending out these lead generation pieces. And look, some of them probably had some content that was worthwhile reading for the reader, but mostly it was self-generated, mm-hmm. to creating these pieces of content that are about um, solving those problems. So that, that's one section. The other section is, it strikes me that it's really about trying to engage and have these conversations in lots of ways, whether it's having lunch, whether it's being online, whether it's, um, you know, 
uh, you know, doing a podcast, whatever it is, it's trying to actually have these conversations and and um, connections as opposed to pushing out things. It just seems like it's a changed marketplace, which is fantastic for small business mm. because we're closer to the customers. Yeah. It's just actually using those tools in a different way. It's actually changing your mindset. I don't know. That's what it strikes me as. So... Five, six years ago, Seth Godin wrote Permission Marketing and began an awareness of, I think, something that was already going on, but he, he heightened awareness of this issue. This, he does it a lot, doesn't he? he? He does. He's not an innovator, but he's a great communicator. Exactly. Um, and and he, I think, gave voice to what we're talking about now, which is this notion of engaging rather than, than, than pushing. Yeah. And, you know, your small business clients who... Um, who, who don't feel that they should be cold calling and talking to people who don't want to talk to them, well, evidently they shouldn't be. They should be earning the right. My favourite expression is earn the right. Yeah. You, you earn the right to send somebody something. That's the permission piece. You, you, you earn the right to then, for select of those, have a deeper conversation. Mm. You, you earn the right to understand a bit about their client's business and then you earn the right to put an offer on the table to maybe address some of those concerns for that business. Mm. Um, it's, it's far more compelling to compel than to sell. It is. It's just. It is. I, I. I always talk about you know going on a date and I can't get married to you. Yeah. You know, and it really is that. You know, it's sort of small sort of introductions that are worthwhile, that are valuable, mm-hmm. that'll win over time. So well, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to talk to you because I, I. I really like the way you talk about the buyer's journey, and you've mm-hmm. spoken a little bit about that. Can you give us some more insights? into your view of mapping out that buyer's journey? When we think of the sales funnel, we we tend to think of ourselves. So most companies who I've worked with um, here and elsewhere um, um, thinks of the sales funnel in terms of where are my prospects in my funnel. And what they ignore is what we call the buyer's journey, which is at the, at the top of your funnel, you've got a bunch of people who don't know you. At the bottom of it, you've got a bunch of people who you call customers. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. But how did they get from, from hello to thank you? Mm-hmm. What did that look like for them? That's the buyer's journey. So if I'm the buyer and you're the seller... Um, uh, for me, in the first instance, I recognise that you provide a certain service but I didn't need it, didn't want it, didn't want to talk to you. And then something that you sent me was interesting, so I showed some interest in maybe exploring that content, whether it was a conversation or a piece of content or a podcast or whatever, I I showed some interest in in some level of engagement. Mm -hmm. Then I acknowledged that actually the problem that you seem to be rabbiting on about probably does exist for me. Before it was just a problem for them, Mm -hmm. now it's a problem for me. Actually, I have got some of that stuff going on in my business. Mm-hmm. And then it's... And I think I need a solution to that problem that has this sort of character. The solution needs to look a bit like this. Mm-hmm. And then I know who can provide me such a solution, you and others. And then I know that I prefer your solution. And then we're doing it. That process 
in my world, not in your world, was uh, it can still be described in the funnel, but we need to think about what they're going through as they go from from hello to thank you, mm. from from top to bottom, and what's their journey, and that gives rise then to the next thing, which is tactically, how can I get them to each of those signposted points? What would be the smartest way, given my limited resources, for me to get somebody from I don't know you and I don't care to I know you but I don't care? Mm. What would be a good way to do that? And then once I've got you to that, what would be a good way for me to get you to the next stage? And so on. And if I map all of those tactics out, then I can build all of those. And my buyer's journey is probably not going to change year to year. So I can afford to build those tactics probably for the long haul. Whereas what we often do in big business and in small is that we decide to do something and we you know, think about it, we plan it, we build it, we execute it, and then we fall in a big heap and stop. Instead, let's build tactics end-to-end that we can do over and over again and get better at it every time we do it. Mm, and tweak it. Tweak rather than rebuild. Yeah. I just love that because I... I think it's a starting point. You know, apart from this problem and, you know, we were sort of talking about segmentation at the start, you know, who we're going to focus on, what's their problem, to actually sit down and I, I've got this financial planning um, group which I've convinced to do some surveys internally and externally with their customers, which has just been brilliant because it, it really highlights to them what they knew and what they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but with two of their staff, I've actually asked them to pretend to be the customers and do the journey from the customer through yes. every touch point because I want them to sort of internalise that experience and be on the other side. It's quite difficult. I mean, I think it's quite difficult to just think about that at the start, but to go through it and actually um, think about those touch points in a service business, which is invisible, mm. you know, until you've experienced it. Um, th- you know, I sort of put that at the start and then, okay to actually look in and walk in those shoes is such a powerful thing. Give an example of, of the tactics that make sense. We're working at the moment with a, um, with a uh, consulting company that got 25 odd consultants and previously the two directors did all the selling mm-hmm. but now um, the senior consultants need to do some selling as well. Oh perfect, I want to hear about this, same problem. <laughs> <laughs> and so we need to create tactics that are sane for non-salespeople to use. These are career consultants. They're never going to um, um, become salespeople overnight. Yeah. And we don't want them to be. We only want them to give up a little bit of their time to the process of earning their revenue. Right. Earning the right to provide services. Yes. So we're going to build sane tactics, and we need tactics that cover the marketing and the sales and basically all of the buyer's journey. So an example of that would be, where are we going to find buyers likely to have this problem? We're going to use a combination of, um, we purchase lists for them, um, we we search engine optimise so that those prospects can be drawn in. Um, We're not doing any advertising, it's um, generally in B2B, I find advertising to be an ineffective tactic. Mm so we're not doing any advertising. Um, And we're also participating in a number of networking forums. Mm -hmm. So collectively, uh, we've got a pool of names now to deal with from some lists that we purchase, existing contacts, from a little bit of inbound, and from some networking, and that's a pool of names. What do we now do with that pool of names? 
we, we uh, undertake uh, annual research into the, the problem that these guys solve. So periodically we ask that pool of people mm-hmm. to participate in the research. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that begins their engagement. Yeah. Um, when we get the research, then periodically we invite the whole pool to learn about what we found from the research. Mm-hmm. So we invite them to a little launch event about the research. So we find ourselves you know, renting lists, writing emails to invite um, people to uh, participate in the research, analysing the research, writing white papers from the research, writing um, a bi-weekly blog um, from the research. So another little insight, so we're writing lots of blog articles. Yeah. Those blog articles in turn get tweeted, they get posted on LinkedIn, they get cross-linked on syndicated sites so they can get found through lots of mechanisms and they're all search engine optimised. Yeah. Right, so that people can be drawn into those blog articles. Yes. From the blog articles, we write a series of white papers where people who are intrigued by the blog but want to dig a little deeper, they can read the white paper. But now we'd like the details. So you can read the blog without telling us who you are. If you want to read the detailed um, uh, paper, which is maybe a snapshot of the research, you need to share your details with us. Yeah, so there's some stuff that's just without a um, caveat on or anything, and then there's some stuff that you've got a deeper intent to move forward, I guess. Correct. So we're writing white papers, research reports, we're writing emails and blogs and tweets and LinkedIn posts. And then once we get a prospect who maybe through a survey related to the white paper or the insight has um, indicated that they have that problem going on, we then need to engage face-to-face with them. So then we're writing... Um, introductory emails for the consultants to use. We're, we're writing, not script because the consultants won't follow a script, but we might give them three or four points to cover on the call. Yeah, at first some call, dot points. Some dot points. It's all we're, all we're going to ask them to follow is remember to ask them these sort of questions. Yeah. So we write some questions for them to ask. And then um, uh, when they want to uncover a clear need, We've, we've built a structured whiteboarding session so that the consultants know how to consistently extract a clear need using a whiteboarding session. Fantastic. Then we've got a template proposal and follow-up emails that relate to that. So a lot of the, the work that we end up taking after the plan's been built is writing. So we're writing web copy, we're writing white papers, we're writing research reports, we're writing emails, we're it's writing content, blogs. content, isn't it? It's content. So how much of that, because you said that the, so the, the two main directors are doing most of the selling or have the relationships, yeah. and the sub-level are now being helped along with these tools that you're providing. Mm-hmm. How much do they have to do of that, or are those tools provided to them with some training? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of content actually have to provide or can they do their 70% let's just say existing customers but if somebody comes into the funnel through these processes then there's the tools for them to execute completely the latter so we give the tools to the consultants and some training for them to use them okay. for those occasions okay and an example of that would be I mentioned the whiteboarding session that's an example where you don't need it until you do yes okay so maybe three times a year you need to do this whiteboarding session. So there's a video on how do I do a structured whiteboarding session. Yeah. What am I looking to get the customer to agree to in that dialogue? How do I conduct it? And we teach them, but then we create a video for them to go back and redo the training at any time. So for the small business owner that's listening to this, that let's say has three or four staff, um, 
knows that there needs to be some rigour around this process of gaining new clients. Mm -hmm. um, the, obviously, there's some steps that they might be able to identify through getting a consultant on board and, and mapping out a plan. Yeah. But then sort of introducing them and the role that those... Um, those other staff play in the sales process, how do they go through that thought process? Because I think a lot of people don't believe that, um, you know, be it one of my clients that has a spa, that everyone's in sales, and yet mm -hmm. sort of they are, yeah. and particularly that um, receptionist person. How do they go through identifying those roles and, and, and where does it fit in their organisation if they're listening to this? If they've got three or four staff, I would... I would not build a plan and then communicate it to those staff. I would get that those staff to build the plan together. Yeah. So the the, the filtering process by which the the receptionist who clearly doesn't consider him or herself to be a salesperson, the filtering process that they will use is that if you build a plan and say now, Dan, here's your role in executing this plan, mm. they'll not buy in. Mm. So let them be a part of building the process that makes sense for them. Mm. Because they'll have some knowledge. Because they're dealing with customers who walk in every day, mm. then it's like, so that tactic won't work. Mm. All right, well, let's find one that will. Let's together find one that will. Yeah. Because you are talking to them as the first point of contact. And where we need to get them to at that first point of contact is here. Mm. So let's together work out how we can do that. Good point. And I think that's right. The buy-in's important. And how great does that person feel that they're heard? And, and they generally know. So it's not just about their buy-in, which is, which is the point that we're on, valid as that is. Yeah. It's also about they actually have some knowledge. That worth, insight. Worth harnessing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we, we, in a business of that size, we would typically lock them all up in a room together and get that's them to build a plan together. Yeah. And so go through a process of building that plan so that they all have a plan that they believe in. Yeah. They nail it to the to the to the bulkhead and that's what they're doing. So that brings me to sort of measurement, which is often left undone. Yes. So we've sort of talked a little bit about sales and a little bit about marketing thing. In terms of the measurement day today, I often find it really funny when I go in and, and even ask questions like, you know, how often do you talk to your customers? Do you know the cost of goods? All these sorts of things. Do you know how much you're spending, how much you're getting in? All these sort of sort of basic sort of things. Uh, have you got any sort of suggestions about how small businesses should be managing those metrics of their business? Firstly, have a very small number of measures and one's a good place to start. One measure. Secondly, make it an input measure, not an output measure. Most businesses, large businesses too, measure outputs in terms of the revenue that's been achieved. Mm, that's right. But that's a, that's a measure that's already too much. It gives you no sense of how you're travelling, it gives you a sense of how you travelled. Mm. Um, uh, you say to me, Hugh, you need to get more revenue. I say, thanks, I think I knew that. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. I knew that I was behind target. What do you actually want me to do? Mm. Well, I want you to go and get some revenue. I don't know, I looked in the cupboard. There's no revenue in the cupboard. I looked. <laughs> yes. What do you actually want me to do? I don't know, go and get some more revenue. And this silly conversation goes on for 15 minutes and we do it once a week. Let's find an input measure. Hugh, you need to, to meet with three people who we've never spoken to before every week. That's your measure. Yeah. Good things will flow from that. Just... Mm -hmm. 
focus on that. And my favourite story there is John McGrath from McGrath Real Estate. So John and I spoke at an event together about seven years ago, and he was telling me about um, his his entree into selling. He decided to become a real estate salesman. He'd never done it before, and he thought, "Look, I'm going to do it. I want to be the best. I actually want to." learned from the best in the world. So I jumped on a plane and flew to America. I think it was San Francisco, LA or San Francisco. And he, he landed at the airport and he rang up this reputed best salesperson in the world and said, I have just flown from Australia 14 hours to come to your city to have a coffee with you and then fly home. Will you meet me? Wow. Of course he got the meeting. Oh, right? fantastic. Got the meeting and said, what do I need to do? Well, what do I need to do? Tell me all the things I need to know. <laughs> For a cup of coffee. He's doing coffee. well. Right. Absolutely. Like, I'll buy you a $2.50 cup of coffee and you're going to tell me everything I need to know. And he did get told everything he needed to know over that cup of coffee. Wow. Because it was one thing. Okay. What are you going to share? You need to meet five new sellers every week. No, don't worry about buyers. That'll happen. If you've got property... They'll come to your property. Mm. The measure that you need to focus on is every is you and now all of John's salespeople need to meet with five new prospective sellers every week. If you only met with four this week, then next week you quote is six. Mm. If you only met with three this week, the next week you quote is seven. That's the measure. Inputs, not outputs. Yeah. So don't say to me, I didn't meet my revenue targets. Say to me, I didn't get in front of enough prospects or I didn't trouble enough buyers about the problem that we can solve. Whatever the input is. Mm. And, and that's so much more practical. I mean, people can do that. Correct. You know, I really like it because it's, it's, it's measurable. You know, you can see where you've missed or, you've, or you're on top of it. And you can fix it. And you can fix it. Because you will fall behind. Yes. Um, and so uh, there's a small company we've been working with. They've got about 30 staff, but there's only two people who sell, the CEO and one other okay. who sell. And in that business, the input measure was two defined need meetings uh, per week. So that is, out of all the things that I do, yeah. I need to have heard from a customer, I need something like X. That's a defined need meeting. Yeah. And that needs to happen twice a week. So do whatever it takes to get two of those. Don't worry about how many proposals you put on the table. Don't worry about your closure ratio. Yeah. Just you need to have a need that might be they need something we can't give them. Qualify out. Mm. But you won't know until you've got a defined need. Mm. So their measure is that. And he now religiously manages himself against that measure. And they have now, as a consequence of that, um, they've increased the average sale value uh, from about twenty dollars to about $45,000 uh, per sale. Mm. And they've done that because what they're trying to extract is the right need. Mm. Not any need, but a need that they're really good at meeting. Which makes so much sense, doesn't it? Because it's easier, you're better at it, there's less wastage, the whole bit. I, want, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I wanted to um, just lastly talk to you about your sales process and the tools that you might be able to provide others. I think that um, selling has a bad connotation, especially for small businesses. You know, it's something you don't want to do. And the way that I look at it is I love meeting or talking to people if I can help them. Mm. If I can help them, it's a joyous thing. And, you know, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. But if I don't even have the conversation, I'm, 
I don't feel like I'm doing them a disservice, but I feel like I'm not actually using my potential to actually service them. So that's the way that I look at it. Um, but I know that that's perhaps a little bit unusual. I think that there's a lot of mindset going on, especially if you're um, not used to um, putting yourself out there and, and, and doing that communication, whether it's email, face-to-face, on the phone, making those calls, seeing an opportunity and saying, look, I thought I might be able to help you with that. Um, here's a little taste of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's quite difficult for small businesses to do, let alone their employees if they're not in that culture. So I think it would be really useful to talk about any sales tools, techniques, strategies, workshops and and things that you've come across um, or that you do within math marketing that might be useful for them. And I'll just say one last thing. I come across a lot of businesses that are in that small to medium space where they actually do recognise they need that sales and they're looking for sales training. They are. They're definitely looking for sales training. And you know what they do? They type in sales training and it's just a mess and they just can't decipher it, let alone trying to get something targeted for what they do and how they do it. And I think that's a big need that I'm coming across as a consultant because it's not my area and I'm big for I don't do this but somebody else does, Mm -hmm. which is great in small business because you get all these referrals. But, um, But just being able to work out, you know, what is a useful sales tool forum training that they should be looking for and how do they find that? Okay. Um, I'm not going to give you the answer that I think you're looking for because <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a big believer in um, I've got the solution, what was the question again? Yes. Um, there isn't a one size fits all. Mm. Um what I would say is that the process of answering that question is what's important and your customers and people listening to this podcast are, are, are smart enough to work out the answers. What they need is a bit of guidance on how, what questions they should be asking themselves. Mm. So I'll give you an example of that. We worked with a, a company, in this case it's a larger company, but I'll use it as an example anyway. Mm-hmm. There was a view that they needed to be better at closing. Mm-hmm. Okay, And we find frequently the problem's not closing, it's opening. Okay. But mm. be that as it may, they had the view that that was the problem. Okay. It turned out that it was, but only for one branch, the branch that was co-located with the headquarters. So the, the view was a narrow and imprecise view compared to the rest of the organisation. Um, you only want to fix the problem in your business that's broken. If you've actually got a very good ratio of once you put an offer on the table to a potential new customer, that a very good percent of those buy, Mm. then you don't need any techniques for fixing that part of the process. True. But if they're in that same organisation, they're not good at getting in front of enough new prospects who are properly qualified, then they need help at the earlier stages in the funnel. Mm. So map out what you think the buyer's journey, not seller's, Mm -hmm. buyer's journey looks like. Mm Map out how many you think you need at each stage every month for the next 12 months. Now we, in our planning workshops, we do it for three years, but if 12 months is good enough. Mm-hmm. Work out how many you think you need at every stage for the next 12 months. Work out what tactics you think you can use to get them in that quantity. So I need 30 at this stage by May. Mm-hmm. I need 20 of those 30 to reach this stage by June, and so on. Map all that out. Mm-hmm. Choose the tactics that you think will be good enough to get them through that that journey and then measure how many 
you actually get to each point. Mm. And a spreadsheet's fine. You don't need a CRM to do all this. You can mm. do it in a spreadsheet. I agree. Then you'll find that compared to what I need to happen, I'm pretty good at two of those stages and I'm pretty awful at two of those stages and there's three of them that I'm okay at. So I better fix the two that I'm awful at. That's where you need the training. Mm. And that could be quite uh, narrow training. It might be that they need training on how to fill the funnel. They need that sort of training they come and do our funnel academy. If they, need, if they do need training and closure because they're not good at closing, then potentially they need some of the more hard-hitting sales training. Mm. Um, but frequently, as I pointed out before, and you agreed that frequently the closing problem is not a closing problem but an opening problem. They're talking to the wrong buyer about the wrong problem and they should have qualified out months ago. Mm. And there's a reason why you didn't close well. You should never have been there. Mm. Um, but if genuinely the problem is not what I said, but it's just a, an inability to ask for the order, then go get some closing training. Mm. If the problem is that your, your, your offer isn't compelling enough, then get some proposal writing training. If the problem is that you're not, your, your buyers aren't buying into the case for change, that is they, they, they think that they need something like what you sell, but they're not quite sure why, and when you put an offer on the table they say, ah, look, maybe it's not such a big issue, I can wait. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't closing and the problem isn't proposals. The problem is that you're not very good at troubling buyers about changing to anybody at all. You're not, you're not creating a business case for mm. change. Mm. So you need to, to get good at creating a case for change. That's different training again. Mm. So there isn't a simple answer. We need to, I think, uh, map out what the journey looks like, map out how many I need to get at each stage, what tactics am I going to use, measure what's actually happening, and then fix the problem, not the not the problem that you thought you had. Oh, fantastic. And it makes so much sense. And just even to go through that process would be useful because they can identify then perhaps where the gaps are. If they want to do your sales academy training, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about how they do that and how they get in contact and what's involved. Okay. So, so Funnel Academy has been running for about eight years. Um, we we often get asked by larger companies to run it for them, and we have 20 consultants around the world, excuse me, 40 consultants around the world, who, who run that training in 20 different countries. Mostly that's big companies who say, look, I've got 15 people, you need to come train them. Mm -hmm. And we've trained thousands that way. The problem is that most small businesses have got one person, mm. literally one person. It doesn't make sense to run training for one. So in Melbourne, and presently only in Melbourne, we run public fun academies where, where just one person can come along to the training. Right. And so we get different people from multiple companies. The information's on our website at mathmarketing.com. Um, and that's a, uh, there are four courses that we run and we cycle through them every year. So we just keep repeating the training. Um, it's the same training that we give to IBM and SAP and those sort of big guys. Um, but it's these public courses are designed for the small companies. Isn't it fantastic? Because if you're in a mix with lots of other people, you're learning all of these things. I imagine that that's really useful. We learn from them too. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. And I've read your book. I'm so annoyed I didn't bring bring it for you to sign, so I have to drop it back in. Um, the Leaky Funnel, which I found really useful, and that's another tool, obviously, that they can use. There's a bunch of free information on the website that they can use without paying anybody anything. 
Um, there's a sales funnel calculator on the website, so you can that process of working out how many buyers are needed each stage. There's a calculator on the website to do that. Yeah. Uh, again, for free. The leaky funnel is 25 bucks from Amazon. Great. Um, <laughs> um, and for most businesses, that's going to be enough. Yeah, exactly. If they need a little more, then we've got the Fun Academy. Um, and if they need more than that, we can we can talk. Great. Thanks, Hugh. Good. Great talking to you, Daniel. Hey, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. For more great marketing tips, go to Dan's blog at www.daniellemcginnis.com and sign up for her marketing tips or visit her website at www.mcginnismarketing.com.au. Catch you next time.